Christian, welcome. Stefan. Great to have you. Would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. I um, took the executive MBA uh, at DTU and graduated in 2020, uh, shortly after the, the corona lockdown. I think we, we just uh, had the chance to, to graduate and, um, and then actually I think the world locked down again uh, in corona. But um, I uh, work now in the uh, Nucredit Asset Management, which is uh, one of the largest asset management companies in in Denmark, and I work as an ESG senior specialist. So this is a, a trend or a field in finance that is moving very rapidly, uh, that you evaluate and screen investments using environment, social and governance factors. I've also worked in the Ministry for Environment, so I have a profile in water, uh, water and and, um, and waste and other types of, of substance areas within the environment. And I also worked as a lobbyist for the World Wildlife Fund mm -hmm. in Denmark on EU agricultural policy. Mm -hmm. And then my first uh, real job was as a UN negotiator mm -hmm. in the Ministry for Climate and Energy when Denmark had uh, the probably too many Danes well-known Copenhagen Climate Summit in 2009, which was seen as a bit of a failure mm -hmm. or a huge failure. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should start with the last part that you mentioned, that is climate negotiations, uh, the COP15. Uh, I was wondering, in hindsight, uh, what have you seen working really well and what have you seen not working well? What are, what are some of those lessons you drew from that experience? Yeah, I was very young uh, and it was, um, it was one of my first jobs and I was only 27 when we started. But there was a good mix in that team. We were around 30 people in the UN negotiations team for Denmark um, working out of Copenhagen. We also had some uh, climate attaches that were sitting in the US, some sitting in Brazil, Russia. Uh, and it was a very international job, a very global job, even though we were sitting here in Denmark. And this mix of being young, energetic, and you know, out of graduate school, and you really wanted to change the world and use your skill set. And then you had a mentor, or you had, I remember having a mentor, his name was Jesper. I had a team leader whose name was Christian, and we had a very inspiring um, head of uh, department or head of division, uh, Thomas Becker. And I think there was a, a lot of support for us uh, that were young and energetic. We were asked to work quite hard, which we did. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot of enthusiasm and support for, for us. They gave us a belief that, you know, you can, do, you can do really well with this task. You know, you don't just go to New Zealand and, uh, and get, give us the lessons learned of this workshop or... Mm -hmm. Um, we trust that you can write a great speech for the minister. You know, please go in and do this uh, and draft some speeches for Connie Hedegaard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this kind of psychological support, I, would, I don't think it's psychological safety necessarily, but it's important when you're young that uh, someone believes in you, that you can do really well with mm -hmm. the task. Because mm -hmm. then 
if if you're young, uh, then you really also believe it yourself. Mm -hmm. And and I might something maybe for the psychologist have a bit of a self criticism and a, 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 t a tendency to maybe be a little bit harsh on myself because I have very high performance standards. And I remember that the 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 superior uh, the superiors and the team leaders were very good in you know encouraging us. Mm -hmm. so I think that's important. So you you were 27 and you found yourself trusted in the limelight of the main world event in that year, pretty much in 2009, right? Yeah. Obama was just fresh in office. Exactly. Clinton, the Secretary of State. That's right. There was hope that finally the U.S. was coming back to the table. Exactly. And, and then. The well, the U.S., um, there was a Waxman-Markey bill in the Senate or in the House of Representatives, which was supposed to give the U.S. some binding legislation. Mm -hmm. And that would then, you know, become a credible uh, negotiating leverage, so to say, in the negotiations. And then uh, China, Brazil, Russia, India could see that the Americans were ready, mm -hmm. but uh, the bill didn't pass. So... Obama came, mm -hmm. but he didn't have, you know, a lot to show, some people would say. So we ended up with a, my, kind of like a soft landing, which was considered not very strong. But mm -hmm. uh, in hindsight, much of the Paris Agreement in 2015 mm -hmm. built on the Copenhagen right. Accord and the Copenhagen Deal. And I think this, uh, our prime minister back then, Lars Lugge Rasmussen, who's today the Ministry of, Minister of Foreign Affairs in Denmark, um, he believed that this political deal in getting 135 prime ministers and heads of state to Denmark, to Copenhagen, would somehow push forward this climate agenda. Mm -hmm. And I think he was very right in that. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, as a young person, I was sitting in the chair, the Danish chair, and I remember seeing Mugabe the, from Zimbabwe, you know, Chavez from Venezuela, Obama, um, all these um, very famous heads of state. And I was... You know, uh, I remember being five meters from, or t two meters from Obama, and also Iran's uh, uh, president. Um, I don't know. Uh, Ahmad, yeah, Ahmadinejad. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So these were, you know, these were some villains, and you had some heroes. But in the end, in the UN, you need to have uh, unanimity, and there was five to seven states that were really being difficult, and then uh, we couldn't get a unanimous uh, mm -hmm. deal. So that's a beautiful example of a failure that was really close to success, but eventually collapsed. Yeah. That, as you said, paved the ground for further success. That's right. But I'm wondering, how did you experience that? Being young, having was... worked so hard for it, yeah. being so close. And then yeah. at that point, at least, you did not know the success would come years later in Paris. Yeah, I think that you're very right. I was very disappointed. And mm -hmm. uh, also my family and my girlfriend's family were asking, you know, you spend all this time on this event and now it's a complete failure. How do you feel about that? Or are you responsible or who's responsible? And it, it, did, it was uh, tormenting. It was really tough. And um, I think we didn't have maybe the tools or we're not given the tools actually to, to bounce back from that. So I was mm -hmm. actually feeling a, a bit sad for some months, mm -hmm. but then we, we quickly had to work again on, on some new things. Wow. But and what, what, I, what I learned from what you are saying now is how leadership doesn't stop with the end of a task. No. Right? It, it continues because whatever happens, the outcome of that big task or big endeavor lives within people afterwards for good or bad. 
You're right, and it's interesting that many of those that were in the negotiating team have been working on climate change in the Danish government or in uh, in embassies or in different capacities. Some of the people from the prime minister's office, uh, I, I see one of them has been working on on climate change, um, and I see many of them uh, being somehow working on it. And there are, now there's a green think tank where my um, I called Consitu. Mm-hmm. And my former uh, team leader is the director of that. Mm-hmm. And Connie Hedegaard has been on the board for that. So, I mean, mm-hmm. people are still pushing because this is a generational mm-hmm. challenge. It might even be, you know, this century challenge or beyond mm-hmm. because temperatures are still rising. And we're very concerned also of where I sit in the financial sector. So that's the next topic, which yeah. is sustainability, right? Yes. So you've you've made that transition from yeah. public sector to private sector, yeah. but still working on sustainability. Yes. So a year ago, yeah. Your diagnosis: Where are we at now? Where we are now? Yeah. We we are in a world where many of the elements from the Copenhagen deal and the Paris Agreement, such as having a net zero strategy, having net zero ambitions for 2050 having a trajectory down towards net zero mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. where we should be if we want to be in a 1.5 degrees world, I see company after company after company being ready with these net zero strategies. Hmm. But I think us as being professional investors in nuclear asset management from the business side, we want hmm. to see short-term targets, 2025, 2030 targets, and we want to see credible low carbon transition plans because it's quite easy for a business um, board or for a CEO to have a long-term mm-hmm. plan 30 mm-hmm. years out, mm-hmm. but that it needs to have some credible CapEx investment. Mm-hmm. It needs to have some, some credible, uh, maybe even at the board level, you need some competencies uh, to drive governance mm-hmm. at the board level. Mm-hmm. So we're looking for several different things to back up some of that of these ambitions from the companies so the role of finance here is that you challenge or investment is that you challenge companies to be more aggressive because you say you see them one after the other being ready to embrace yes. those objectives set by the government for 2050 that's right but as investor you want them to go faster and bigger yeah faster and and be credible credible and and actually put some money behind mm-hmm. just to give an example We've talked a lot about hard to abate industries. Mm-hmm. So that could be cement, steel, mm-hmm. aluminum. It could be shipping like Maersk, etc. It could be uh, you know airlines. Um, some sectors drive a lot of the emissions. In Denmark, we have Maersk, and they have a large fleet of container ships. And we have seen that they've invested in somewhere between 13 to 18 large methanol ships. And I, see, I think seen from a business point of view, we need these role models, we need these mm-hmm. examples. And uh, the company I work in, uh, we have been part of this investor dialogue, pushing Mask as part of uh, what is called Climate Action 100 Plus, mm-hmm. where we engage with the largest companies on climate change. And in that sense, you're able to marry superior returns with the values and the impact you want to have. That's right. Um, there is a lot of studies done by academics on these ESG factors. So if you 
if you look at a company, if you look at a portfolio of 50 companies and you screen for ESG risks, environment, social and governance risks, and then if there are some clear red flags, then you eliminate those companies from your portfolio if they are breaching norms or if they have toxic emissions, you know, dumping toxic waste in the river. We don't want none of that. Because that's negative screening. It could be negative screening. This is called exclusions. Exclusions. Yeah. And there's a big debate in finance the whole last year. Should we exclude or should we engage? And Nucredit does a lot of engagements. Mm -hmm. So we have engagements on, on various topics where we try to, in the dialogue, push the companies. Mm. This is also leadership, mm -hmm. but it's called stewardship mm -hmm. um, or active ownership. And I think the role of finance is very important. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why I also went from the government into finance, because I was a bit maybe disappointed with when you sit in the government that we have quite small budgets. Um, we have a lot of influence, but we don't have a lot of money to spend on projects. Mm -hmm. And here we get to move very large amounts of capital mm -hmm. in the right direction. Mm -hmm. how, how do you continue and pursue that thought leadership? Yeah, so in, in my job, I write five to seven pages, uh, analyses of five to seven pages. They are called issue briefs on different topics in sustainability. Mm -hmm. And um, I have been working on some projects that started back in the lockdown period because you know restaurants were closed and there was no entertainment. And I, ha I had an, a desire to write more. So I've been working on, on a book, which I hope can come out soon. And this is about conglomerates. And it's, uh, it's about uh, different types of, uh, of uh, conglomerates. So investment companies and serial acquirers uh, and you know, more traditional industrial conglomerates. And um, I'm asking a question, you know, whether uh, it is a superior strategy to be a conglomerate uh, in the modern age, because it was seen as a very strong business strategy in the 1960s. And now we see you know, companies like Alphabet, uh, and we see companies like Tencent Holdings um, acquiring a lot of companies uh, through perhaps a venture arm, such as Google Ventures, or Tencent Holdings have been acquiring a lot of online gaming companies throughout the world. And so we see these diversified giants um, becoming really large players. Yeah. And uh, I've been studying, you know, what has been their corporate strategies, what are their acquisitions? And because I'm an investor, I'm interested in whether it's, it's a good strategy for investors. And um, yeah, the book will be called Conglomerate Empires. And mm -hmm. I hope it will be out this year or uh, in 2024. <laughs> What do, you, what do you think of when you look at the future? What I'm seeing from an ESG point of view, it's biodiversity. Mm. Uh, it's the loss of biodiversity. And that's definitely something I worked a lot on. Um, and that will influence the food and agriculture sector. It will influence certain value chains um, because you might see crop losses, mm. crop yield declines, etc. But if you look at a more general general purpose technology that will influence businesses across the board. For me, there's no doubt that the single most important thing the next 10, 20 years is the 
the rise of uh, artificial intelligence. Hmm. Okay. And so I where would, are we are to make a trends. Yeah, and I think artificial intelligence will be something that every single company will have to address. Uh, having a strategy, having how to, having finding out how can you use this technology in a proprietary way to perhaps you know upload data sets in the cloud and then some AI data mining, uh, deep mind technology can generate insights. Uh, this is a very powerful uh, trend that we see now. Question. Um, I know you mentioned how important it was years ago when you had a very, very challenging, very, very influential uh, mission for quite a while. You mentioned how important it was to have supportive leadership. What did you specifically experience when you had this support from leadership? Do you remember that? What did they, he, she actually do to be supportive? Yeah, I remember that. Um, I remember that the the team leader I had was also. He, he told us that he was also a, a football coach or a badminton coach or something like that. And I think uh, he has been one of the few leaders I've had that have that has been using uh, these types of techniques or, or ways of, of, of leading where you use maybe this more um, optimistic, direct uh, coaching that you find perhaps on the football pitch. Uh, specific being, feedback? Yes, yeah, specific feedback, but more importantly saying like, I know you can do it. Mm. There's not a single task that you cannot do. Uh, and. Uh, I, we want to see your brain in action or something like that. Like it was giving me a very high reputation that, that I had to live up to, but not in a negative way. No, it sounds like it was a basic sense of being trusted. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. And then I, I think that it's when you're, when you're young and it's, one of, it's your first job, then you want to live up to that trust or that high reputation that you're given. Yeah. And then you go in a bit extra. Trust is motivational. Uh, having a direction, a clear picture, uh, nicely expressed, is motivating. What what could demotivate you? I think, in some sense, if you work in a very specialized organization like I do, where you have teams, you have a bond team, or you have a an alternatives team or you have a value equity team or a focus equity team where you have different strategies and people are sitting a bit in silos mm -hmm. and um, what can demotivate me sometimes is that is maybe the lack of transparency or the lack of sharing of knowledge uh, some people hate some people hate you know receiving a lot of messages and a lot of emails about what goes on in the organization, but actually I, I really think it's important. So I would like to have more of that to yeah. feel that I'm included in, in the discussions. Um, but it might be seen as a bit inefficient. But uh, Waste of time? Yeah, I, I think that some organizations are very focused on, you know, that value creation happens in the teams. Mm -hmm. But I, I tend to believe that there's also you know, strong um, value creation between uh, teams.
it's easy to notice the passion you have about having uh, the possibility to influence key issues in society. You're very passionate about it and it seems to be very important for you. Oh, it also comes across to me that your approach is you are analytical and you have a strategic perspective. You see the bigger picture and you see how it moves and doesn't move. And uh, you like to be in a situation and in a context where there are influential yeah, power. And I think uh, I have also learned that internal stakeholders mm. uh, and managing internal stakeholders is, is more important than I actually thought. And uh, I need to work more on that. I've been very much focused on external stakeholders. Yeah. And yeah. This, uh, this can be both a psychological thing that, you know, I feel I feel better at work at, you know, uh, connecting, you know, sometimes with strangers than, than working uh, closely with colleagues. And I'm really pleased that you're so honest about that because that was my, uh, the, the high if I should highlight a pitfall in you being very passionate about influencing, I was asking myself while I was listening, do you, do you remember to show the, the person, the human behind this very professional, analytical, strategic, influential focus? Because, yeah, and because how does people connect? It does by being transparent, by also showing not necessarily, of course, not private issues, but more personal aspects, not only the professional and um, influential part, but also the more personal. So I was wondering uh, if you are, if you remember to be careful and aware how to create followership by sharing. Also, thoughts behind actions, doubts, issues with other people and taking lead on that as well as taking lead on being visible. I, you were smiling just now. Yeah, I think uh, as always, uh, you are a very uh, astute observer and uh, a very experienced coach. Um, I think you're spot on. I probably need to be better at that and feeling safe doing it yes. and, um, and knowing that that will not necessarily detract from, from me uh, or uh, but actually I, the opposite but, yeah but I, I think that it's also a bit you know what is the culture like in that workplace but of course um, we should we should be doing it if it if it uh, is increasingly you know, if we of course if we feel better and also if we are also efficient uh, yeah, exactly that's the point yeah that's the point okay thanks a lot